You're listening to episode 127 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 16th of December 2020 here in Norwich. And we're just about wrapping up for Christmas, aren't we, Steph? We are, but that doesn't mean things are slowing down. We've, we've got lots and lots of things on at the moment, including lots of new online courses and workshops. And we've got a couple of big literary prizes closing soon for uh, submissions. 2020 has not been, uh, it's been a strange year, but it's also been very busy for us at NCW. So I bet you this is your final week, isn't it? So you're probably looking forward to, to having a nice long break. Indeed, yes. Yeah, looking forward to spending some more time in my house and not going anywhere. It'll be wonderful. But uh, yeah, we'll be taking a couple of weeks break from the podcast, but we will be back in January with a whole load of new exciting talks with different writers. So do stick around for that. But yeah, in the meantime, you will have to listen to friends and family instead of me and Steph. I know they're second best. It's a tough, it's a tough time, Christmas, but um, hopefully lots of mince pies and presents will get you through it. Yeah, exactly. At least there's a little bit of tradition we can bring in in amongst all the completely mad things that have been 2020. (laughs) Absolutely. So talking of uh, things we've had to do strangely this year, our residencies is one of them in that we ordinarily have people come and visit Norwich and stay in our lovely cottage on the Dragon Hall campus and they can come for a week or a month depending on the specifics of the residency and they get to live in the space and do their writing and work on their projects. But Obviously, 2020 being what it is, that's not been possible to have someone physically travel and come and stay here. So instead, we've had some digital residencies where we've given people a space in which to write, even if physically they're still in their house like everyone has been all year. And on the podcast today, we have something of a double bill in that we have not only a special guest, but also a special guest interviewer. So the guest is Thomas Hyama van Vos, who has published several novels and his chapbook of short stories, Thank You for Being With Us, is the focus of today's conversation. Now, Thomas was our digital resident for a month back in November, was it? Is it November? Yeah, I think so. We got to meet him over Zoom, didn't we? We did, yes. We had a few meetings and we ran a few events with him as well. Yes, we were very lucky to have Thomas uh, beam in all the way from lovely Amsterdam, where he lives, uh, to have a conversation with Daniel Hahn and Alice Tetley-Paul and Joseph Vandervoort. And they were chatting about the launch of some new Dutch writing chapbooks, which came out earlier in the year in partnership with Strangers Press and New Dutch Writing. Yeah, and that event can actually be found on our YouTube channel. So if you missed it, do head over there and you can go and watch it as if you were there. And asking questions in today's episode is guest interviewer Andrew McDonnell. Andrew's poetry and short fiction has been published across several anthologies and journals such as Poetry London, Butcher's Dog and more. He's an editor at Gatehouse Press and he teaches English literature at the University Centre Peterborough. Yeah, it's a great conversation, touching upon a lot of uh, Thomas's technique and inspiration, uh, how he brings his characters to life and how lockdown has affected his writing and, of course, affected the residency itself as well. So uh, let's hand over to Andrew and Thomas. Good morning, Thomas. It's great to see you. Uh, I'm sitting in Norwich at the moment and you're, you're sitting where? You're looking in like you're in, the, in your flat at home, possibly. Yeah, that's true. I'm sitting in my uh, flat at home um, and unfortunately not in Norwich. Uh, I'm in Amsterdam now, uh, an empty city, uh, and I'm looking uh, besides me the empty streets. And um, during these weeks, well, I'm the virtual writer in residence, as you know, in in Norwich. So in my mind, I'm partly in Norwich, but uh, my physical appearance is solely in Amsterdam. And how are things there in Amsterdam at the moment? Are you in some sort of lockdown or have you you kind of got liberty there at the moment? Yeah, well, some sort of lockdown is the good description. Um, um, I think two weeks ago, one week and a half, uh, the restaurants and cafes were closed down again. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of public protesting against all the rules and regulations uh, more than there were in uh, March and April. So it's still, well, um, kind of busy on the streets and uh, the stores are open. Um, so there is some, some life outside here, but there are a lot of more, uh, more regulations than there were this summer. So it's, uh, 
a partly a lockdown, I would say. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a good point, really, around um, writing. That I kind of just just interested. I mean, I personally found it really difficult to write when we had full lockdown, and reading was just out the window. I just couldn't couldn't read at all. I mean, how have you been getting on with with writing under lockdown? Has it been fruitful? Um, well, not really, especially not at the beginning of the lockdown. I think um, we had the same experience back then because my mind was too fragmented and there was too uh, much news coming in and too many updates and mm. also too much uncertainty, I think, to really focus on a big project or anything. Uh, so the only thing I did then and actually the only thing I, I do now uh, uh, work-wise is writing short stories uh, which I also did before the lockdown so it's um, well that's a that's a fine uh, satisfying occupation but I feel I don't have the concentration for a whole novel or or uh, really long short stories or anything like that because my attention span is still well uh, short and um, what's What's also the case, I have, uh, my latest novel was released in February, the end of February. So really before everything was shut down and uh, well, I've had the luck that there was a public uh, presentation and anything, uh, but it still feels like that novel, well, it, it's, it's still in my head. And maybe that's also partly because I didn't have uh, many public appearances uh, to talk about it or to read from it. So I think that altogether, it's, uh, well, I'm still working, but the whole uh, Corona thing isn't really improving my focus or my work. So it, was, it, it wasn't really fruitful for me either, no. You know, it's funny, just before it, it, we sort of shut down, I went into, into bookstores in Norwich and just bought piles of books you know, this intention of reading them and they just sat on the coffee table just gathering dust for months, you know, so I was thinking, okay, I need to write. So I was trying to, trying to sit at the computer and write and nothing, nothing was happening. You know, I was in the middle of a PhD where I needed to write short stories. Um, so instead I was going back and just trying to edit older ones because it seemed to be the only way I could work. Like here, I just found I was doom scrolling the news all the time, you know, kind of through Twitter or through the, you know, stuff like The Guardian, just because news was everywhere and, and it was just such a strange thing to be living through. And, and like yourself, you know, I had a book that came out a bit earlier, came out June last year. And just when I felt like it was starting that upward trajectory, you know, and, and things were happening, it just came to a stop. And, it, and it's this kind of, you know, this odd thing of waiting years to have this book emerge and then suddenly everything just stops. And I still don't know when we come out of this, what life that book will have in terms of promotions and readings and, and so on. And, and if I just kind of move on from it, I mean, your novel um, that came out, have you managed to do many online readings with it? Yes, yeah, some. And um, well, I've had the luck that the public interviews in the newspapers and the reviews, they were pre-corona, so they weren't, well, like infected with that news. Um, and there were some things arranged and they were rescheduled as Zoom meetings or online events. And that worked okay, given the circumstances, but it's just not the same. And that's uh, mm -hmm. quite of a cliche, I think. But I felt that, especially when I read a chapter of it, it doesn't work if you can't see how people react or if you can't feel how the, the prose works. Yeah, I've also noticed that at first people were really keen on doing alternative events, but now that also like dried up a little, I think uh, because of the fact that people are getting um, impatient, people are really uh, focusing on well, getting their lives back or how, however you were going to call it. So I've did some of them, um, of these kind of events in April and May, uh, but now, well, uh, besides this virtual residency, I'm just uh, sitting at home and, and working on my stories and working on some articles and stuff, which is okay, but it's not, um, it's not flourishing or, uh, or anything like that. No, it's, it's, I think okay is the good word, but I, I don't know how, how, how that's uh, 
in your life, but I've noticed by myself uh, in my own life that the last couple of weeks or maybe even the last month, I'm getting some reading concentration back. So I'm reading a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that in your life? Yeah, I mean, because I also teach uh, university, I suddenly uh-huh. had to read tons of books for a module I'd never taught before in world literature. So I was reading people like Anna Kavan, and suddenly I was able to, you know, I think the pressure of having to teach them meant I got back into reading again. And that helped a lot. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, when I got your pamphlet to read, you know, I kind of read it really quickly. It was really enjoyable. There's something about short fiction, particularly at the moment, it just works. It just, you know, I think because I have such a short attention span presently, that reading shorter fiction is much more rewarding than, say, a novel. Um, possibly in the same way you're finding writing. I mean, I don't, I don't write long form. I write short, short stories and poetry. Um, so, you know, there's not been a major shift in what I might write at the moment, but certainly reading wise, I'm, I'm enjoying short fiction much more, you know, I can devour the book of Japanese short fiction. Um, and strangely enough, I actually got a penguin book of Dutch short stories, which I got before this project, which I'd like to have a read of, which again is published by penguin. Um, so, so I think, I think a lot of people as well are, are reading more short stories than ever just because you can sit and read them in half an hour to an hour at most and then move on. I mean, maybe we should have a look at your collection now, this, this pamphlet um, or chat book. What would you call it actually, Thomas? Is it a chat book or a pamphlet? Have you, have you kind of got a word for it? Uh, I, I normally call it a chat book because chat that book, was, yeah. uh, that's, that's how it was called by the, by the publisher. And uh, maybe that's a language uh, difference. But in the Netherlands, if we talk about a pamphlet, that's the Dutch word for pamphlet, we mean more like a political um, piece of work. And these are two short stories, fiction, both uh, prose. I've written a couple of years ago, and they are originally they're part of a collection of short stories with, with six stories in it. Uh, mm. And two of them are now translated, and they are combined... Uh, for the first time um, as a duo pack and uh, well they are a chapbook together uh, well yeah a small a really small uh, book with stories or uh, one long story and one short story yeah, a chapbook that's the description I use yeah it's funny I mean I think because my background was in poetry before I started writing fiction pamphlets is a regular term in poetry world so it's kind of you know, there, there is, there is in a sense, I think for me, that, that short stories are closer to poems in some regard, in the sense that they deal with moments rather than sort of a longer narrative. Uh, and they have that kind of brevity or, or economy of words that, that you also find in, in poems, you know, in prose poems often sit as that gap between the two. I mean, I, I loved reading your stories here. I, I really enjoyed Thanks. them. They made me laugh as well. I mean, I think, I think, you know, I was questioning whether I've just got a warped sense of humor <laughs> or whether they or they were meant to be funny, but I, I think it's, there's, there's bathos in these. I mean, the second story, thank you for being with us. Uh, reminded me in some ways of John Cheever's story reunion, where this son is going to meet his father who he hasn't seen since his parents divorced and, it, and it's, a, it's really flash fiction, that story. But in that, his father just takes him on a tour of these bars in downtown New York where he's rude to waiters and embarrasses his son. But what you, what you understand as you read through that is that the father's actually quite vulnerable. The reason he's acting like this, he's trying to impress his son because he doesn't know how else to do it. Um, now, it might just be the coincidence that it's, it's a father and son story, but there were elements of the humour in that that I felt were also in yours. Um, you know, there's, there's bits, I'd just like to quickly read this bit that I, that I, that I enjoyed, is when um, Egbert is on his way to the studio, being driven by the chauffeur, and the chauffeur says, it makes sense, the chauffeur says after a silence, that you're nervous, I mean. It's national TV, right? I think I'll watch it when I get home right after this. I'm curious about your story. Me too, says Egbert. So I, I kind of found that really funny, as if as if he's um, 
not even aware of his own story that is in it. And all the way through that narrative, there's a sense that he's disconnected from his own life. Um, much the same as our narrator in the massage parlor feels disconnected from his own life. Am I kind of hitting on hitting on a particular nail there? What you wanted to you wanted to express in writing these stories? Yes, you actually are. Uh, well, thanks uh, at first uh, for, for for your kind words. And I don't know the Chiva story, but um, I'm going to look it up. And everything you say about it, uh, well, resembles especially the second story. Uh, thank you for being with us. But both of my stories are. Um, about, well, main characters that are distant from uh, the world around them and that try to, well, avoid or minimize the distance, but also uh, they are really unable to do that. And to focus on one of these two stories, uh, the second one, um, the one that you just read apart from, um, it's indeed about the father and the son. And we follow this father, uh, who has a typical Dutch name. When I wrote it, I didn't think it would ever be translated. Egbert, we have a <laughs> clunk in, in the Netherlands. Um, uh, and he's coming to Amsterdam, where he used to live, but now he lives abroad. And he's coming there to, well, to visit his son, but the, the uh, rendezvous between the two of them will take place on the national TV. Um, because the son has written a book uh, and that book is uh, partly or mainly about his youth, about the weird, difficult relationship father and son have. Um, and what I tried to do in that story is to, what well, we follow the father and we follow how he goes to the city of Amsterdam, then to the TV studio, and then he is like dropped in a, a live broadcast where there's also a smooth talking uh, third person, the present presentator of the show, the interviewer. And we follow him and he's really on his guard. And at the same time, he, he doesn't really know what's happening. So he's bo both distant and vulnerable. And these two feelings and uh, more general um, are both... Yeah, he, he, uh, both victim and um, um, both sim sympathetic victim and, uh, well, like a, a villain. Uh, I wanted mm. to combine that in the main character so that while you're reading it and while you're seeing what the son does and what the son ha have written and uh, while you're reading it, you, you get to learn more about their past. Um, that at the same time, you sympathize with the main character, with this father, Egbert, because he's, he has done a lot of things quite wrong. Uh, but at the same time, you can also, yeah, well, yeah, you can sympathize and hate him at the same time. And that's what I wanted to do in that story, to get inside his head uh, while he looks at himself, while the world looks at him. And um, thank you also for bringing up that there's, humor uh, humor in it that there were humorous aspects in the story because it's 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 not about a quick laugh the story but uh while it's quite dramatic in uh, in the base in the essence i also want to uh touch some light tones in it and to make it also a little bit awkward so i'm really glad that you point that out and yeah um uh, the other story in the chat book that's smaller and that's about a guy who doesn't really leave his house. Uh, he only looks uh, as a Hitchcock uh, wear window type of uh, scene as the mm. massage parlor that's at the other end of the street. And he looks and he looks and he writes everything. He sees what kind of person uh, are entering the massage parlor, what kind, of, um, what kind of massages are given, what kind of people come there. And it's, Essentially, the story is only about his um, unhealthy focus on that one house across the street, and he's both the spectator and the well, the the main character, and he's telling the story. Um, and in that story, there's also really uh, both physical and emotional distance. 
between him and the outside world. And that's one of the main uh, themes, I think, in all my work, but especially in these two stories which are, that I want to write about. There's a sense, I think, of alienation, you know, uh, that runs through it, that these characters, almost like they're, they're disassociated from the life around them and what's happening. Yeah. The, I mean, the first story, uh, the massage parlor, the narrator, who is in this flat overlooking this massage parlor and recording the comings and goings, um, you know, it kind of, it put me in mind of the Edgar Allan Poe story, Man of the Crowd, where there's this guy sitting in the coffee shop watching people outside of London and just priding himself on how he understands these people. Your character, he sort of invents lives for people that, that he observes. Um, as if, like in the second story, where um, the father, Ekber, is essentially told by his partner that life is passing him by. He just lets things happen. And these two characters have a similar, you know, this similar predicament, if you like, uh, even though one's at the start of his adult life and the other's at, at, at the other end of it. And the other thing I also noticed was this, this um, little coincidence that in the first story it says, slowly the man got up, the woman shooed him away as if he were a stray dog. And the second one, uh, he doesn't look at anyone and drags his heavy suitcase behind him like a recalcitrant dog. So this kind of sense of these, these, this kind of animalistic thing as well. There's this this dog reappearing as something loyal or something that kind of is is um, yeah, wait, waiting for for things to happen is is fascinating. And I mean, I can I could recognise in the first story myself in my twenties, you know, in that in that weird way of waiting for life to get going as if, you know, it's suddenly going to happen one day. And I, I mean, I write a poem on this that's in my collection, um, which was, which is exaggerated, but, but the sense of sitting there, you know, in, in your, in your underwear on a sofa on a, on a I'm Wednesday waiting. afternoon <laughs> <I'm> waiting, <laughs> <I'm> waiting. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly coming across a magazine and finding that one of your peers is in a, in a rock band that's been, you know, critics are kind of celebrating and it's like, Oh, hang on a minute. So, you know, those moments of, of you know just waiting or or finally understanding that actually it's down to you to make life happen as it were um but it's funny because i think we live in an age where it feels like things will happen for us automatically because of advertising because of the way that the media works and so on um what i loved in the second story as well was this um this whole thing around is the son called kern or cohen Kuhn. Uh, that's also Kuhn, okay. <laughs> that's also a name that uh, uh, when I wrote it down, I didn't think it would ever be pronounced in English. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's typical uh, Dutch, uh, Kuhn with a K, but uh, we can say uh, Kuhn, uh, Cohen. Uh. Always, always make us work hard with names. Always make us work <laughs> hard. It's good. It's, it's an education. Um, I, think, I think then, you know, that, that bit with the, the sense that the son has written this story this book about his childhood and the absent father. But the father doesn't recognize that story, doesn't recognize himself in it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why he can't ultimately defend himself. That's how I read it. He can't defend himself against the TV host because it's not like he's defending the person that's there. It's like, it's almost this kind of sense of multiple selves. Um, and that, and that, I mean, it's also, it's quite tragic, it's sad, but it also is funny. I don't, I, I couldn't put my finger on it other than to say it's like Bayfoss. It's like the Cheever story. You know, when, I, when I've taught that story with students, I say to them, you know, who thinks this is funny? And some students say, oh, it's really tragic. It's really sad. It reminds me of my absent father or, you know, those kind of things. And others say, no, it is a really funny story. So it's interesting how readers completely either miss humour that's in something or they just feel overwhelmed by the, the more serious aspects of those stories. I mean, as, as writers, we don't really have much power over that. <laughs> you know, it, it's once it's out there, it's in the reader's hands. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of thought that both pieces had, had this kind of quite dark humour going on in the sense that although what's happening is deadly serious, there's also a sense that... Um, 
you know, that, that there is something inherently funny about the human condition as well. Yeah, well, well, thanks, because that was um, what I was hoping for. Uh, and of course, you don't know how people will read a story and they read it differently. But, uh, well, you can have a, an aim as a writer. And this was one of my aims. And uh, to, well, to elaborate on what you said before, um, I think, indeed, they're both kind of waiting for everything to start. And they are watching their life as if somebody else is controlling it. So they're quite passive, both of them. And... Um, Furthermore, I think they're both looking for some way of control, uh, which they can't have. But but the guy that's looking at the massage parlor, well, he's kind of controlling the parlor, even though he never comes there. He doesn't even go outside in the story. He's controlling it by writing down all the time slots and all the kind of visitors. So uh, that gives him the feeling that he knows what happens there. That gives him the feeling that he's somehow well, oversees it. And um, the father, Egbert, in the second story, essentially, even though he's a different age, a different life, a different man, a different setting, essentially he wants the same. He wants to well, control his own story while his, uh, his tragic indeed is that, that the son uh, wrote down the story about him, partly, in which uh, he doesn't recognize himself. Um, and that's, that's quite tragically for him. And um, well, he tries to uh, maneuver during the TV interview uh, um, and he's tried to um, restructure his story and tell his own story. But because it's live, because it's television, because he's quite unprepared, because he hasn't read the book of his son, because his son is also quite well, slick and well-prepared, he mm -hmm. can't gain control over what essentially is the story about him, the story uh, that the public uh, will see and hear about him. So, yeah, he's not really tactical. He did some things wrong, but that also hopefully gives it a, well, tragical undertone because he goes to Amsterdam to gain control about his public story and he, he can't control it. He... He can't control what his son says and writes and does. And he can't control how people see him. And um, that's also the reason uh, last week we, we spoke briefly to prepare this mm. conversation. And we also talk about uh, perspectives. And the first story is written in the first person perspective because I thought, well, uh, the guy is only sitting in his room. He's only... He's only seeing what happens in front of the street. So it's constantly in his own head. So therefore I thought uh, the first person perspective was fitting, but this Egbert guy, well, he constantly is reflecting on how people will see him and how will they think of him. So therefore I wrote it in a third person uh, perspective. At first, it, that was also a, a first person perspective story. Also, uh, I am walking to the TV uh, show and that kind of sentences, but I thought, no, he's constantly looking at, at how the cab driver sees him, at how the people at the studio see him. So therefore, I thought, well, we have to, uh, I have to write it in the third person. Uh, mm. And actually, I've also thought about the second person perspective for that story and uh, another story in the collection where they are originally from is written in the second person. And, well, you've mm. told me that you are... Uh, uh, a big fan of the second person perspective but <clears throat> what i what, what i like about uh, all these kind of this is a technical part of a story but it really mm. uh, affects the tone and it really affects the team and uh, well in the tv program i think it it makes the reader feel more distant and more awkward because this expert is constantly seeing himself as a third person as a he um and also, though, I think it helps create sympathy for him, you know, even though some of his actions in the past are inexcusable, there is also this sense of, you know, we get his vulnerability. There's, there's almost something about that, um, you know, certainly in, in British television, a character like, you know, this monstrous character like Alan Partridge, you know, where, you, where we feel sympathy for him, even though he, he's, he is 
horrible. <laughs> I don't think I don't necessarily think that Egbert is 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 so horrible. I just think the mistakes we make when we're younger, the choices we make when we're younger, um, the way they come back to haunt us. That's essentially what's happening. There's a bit where he's in the studio where the actual experience, you know, the heat of the lights, if you like, the brightness of the lights, the sound, yeah. the clapping. It's a bit about you know the, the applause is louder than he expects. Suddenly is just something really excruciating. There's something about it where I can understand why he freezes. I feel I feel him freezing, as I feel I would in that situation, you know, with with, with this kind of experience. And um, the way his son is just, you know, he doesn't actually talk to his son. So there is this anticlimax as well in the story that you're um so spoilers alert here but the sense that that you are kind of building this up to the point where they will have some kind of meaningful conversation but of course that never happens no. and that and that's 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 one of the great kind of bits of the story uh, in terms of the narrative you know the narrative point is that we like him feel that disappointment and i think i think you're right i think it was in first person we wouldn't we wouldn't have the same sympathy for him that I think we get in third person limited, you know, it's, uh, it works really well. And that, and it makes perfect sense why the, the, you know, the first story is in first person. I'm, I'm always, always happy to talk about second person narrative because I'm just a massive nerd for second person narrative, but you know, so it'd be, it'd be great to read hopefully that story in English one day, or I need to learn Dutch quickly and read it in, you know, um, let's talk about the translation process. Cause that's really fascinating. I mean, did you work much with with Moshe, who translated the the uh, chat book? No, actually not. Um, he emailed me a couple of times, but uh, only once uh, he was finished with uh, the two stories. And I think uh, that's that's fine because uh, I was still able to read his translations in. Uh, uh, in in time, so if I had suggestions or remarks, I was able to say them, but I didn't have them. Um, but apart from that, he he turned out to be really well. Uh, he he did it on his own, and I think he did mm. he did it great. Uh, and um, I'm in the fortunate position that uh, some of my books are translated into German uh, and. Um, I've noticed there and I've heard uh, from other writers and, and authors and uh, translators um, that, uh, that translators often uh, have a lot of contact with authors with, with a lot of questions and remarks but also there are a lot of translators that try and uh, uh, succeed in doing it totally by themselves and, and Moshi uh, is obviously one of the well the second type of translator. So I've never met him, uh, and actually I was unaware of the fact that these two stories uh, were being translated uh, until they actually were. So I wasn't expecting any mails. He just uh, emailed me. Well, these are the two stories in English, uh, and there you go. And then we uh, had a briefly uh, and uh, friendly uh, email exchange, but. Uh, Mm. The process itself, it, uh, uh, I wasn't really involved in that. I mean, what's your reaction now seeing these stories in English? Do they still feel like your stories or do they feel slightly other? No, they actually, well, they, they, they really feel like my stories. And that, that was the only thing that I really wanted to do once Moshi uh, emailed me the two stories. Um, I didn't want to check all the details because his English is far better than mine. Uh, but I wanted to just to read them and to see if they have the same tone and feeling that I tried to uh, well put in the Dutch uh, versions, uh, the Dutch stories. And they both had that feeling. They both had the same kind of, hopefully, compact tension and the same kind of uh, sympathy slash hate towards the main characters. All these elements that were really important for me, they were in the English versions too. And what's really strange in um, reading stories in a different language that you understand um, is that, the, that it feels both really distant because I haven't worked on it um, in a, any way. Um, and I, w I wouldn't be able to write these kind of stories in English. 
And at the same time, while it feels distant, it also feels really intimate because I recognize, well, the plot of the stories, the main characters, some type of formulations and sentences. So it feels really, uh, really strange. Um, it feels like a, like, a, like a dream that is remembered by someone else or something, a personal dream. Um, uh, but that's, that's, that's really, nice, yeah. That's, that's a really strange feeling. And what's, uh, it's a nice feeling also, by the way. Um, and what's good and strange about these two stories, these two stories, because they're translated in English, is that English is the language we constantly hear. Uh, I listen to English music all day. I uh, watch mainly English movies. So it's, uh, for me, uh, besides Dutch, well, it's the second. It's my second language, uh, and I've also, when I was young, I've traveled a lot to England. Uh, I think thirty to forty times. I've lived in London for half a year when I was eighteen. So um, I can't speak um, British English. Uh, I can't speak it fluently, but I understand the language. So to see your own words in a different language that you understand. It also feels like, well, like a big <laughs> compliment or achievement, uh, much more than a, uh, how it would feel if it's just a language I don't understand a word of. So I wasn't really involved in the process, but I'm really happy and also actually proud of the outcome. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the translation's great. I mean, I, you know, obviously I can't compare like by like, but you know, there's there's a strong feeling coming through both stories of something similar. I mean, there's a bit towards the end of the second one where uh, our character, uh, Ekbert, is looking or he's imagining looking at his partner when he returns home. And it says, he'll gaze at her for a long time. She's prettiest when asleep. And that, for me, that line echoed back through the, you know, the entire story, that sense of, you know he finds her prettiest when she's sleeping as if again, he's detached from life. So those, those kind of little bits here felt like the translation was capturing something that I felt was, was in the originals as I'm reading this, um, you know, cause I've, I've read, you know, read quite a lot of stuff in, in translation. Um, and I think translation now is much stronger uh, than it was. I think there's much more thought goes into the idea of how we actually translate ideas and feelings as opposed to just what we call transliteration translating exactly from one language into the other you know i think i think you lose stuff you know i can i can remember reading some um uh some stuff by Camus that feels quite outdated like it almost needs a new translation and and some other some other french stuff um as well so yeah i think i think the translation here works really well in capturing what it was that you intended to go into those two stories and I'm, I'm also it'd be interesting to to know why Moshi decided on those two stories in particular did you have a conversation about that no to be honest I, I didn't have it uh, and I'm not really sure if he made the selection or if the Dutch literary funding uh, made it um, I think I think um, he was given the task to translate these two. And I think that that was also a question of uh, the length of the chapbooks because, well, um, there are eight chapbooks uh, and eight young Dutch writers are being translated now. And their stories are in, in eight different chapbooks. Um, they are published by Strangers Press altogether. And I think they all have kind of the same length. Uh, I haven't seen them because of, well, um, this connection is good, but the mail connection, uh, the post connection isn't. So I'm still uh, hopefully uh, waiting <laughs> for the actual physical chapbooks. As far as I'm concerned, they don't even e exist. Um, but I think they all had to have the same length. And I think that was also uh, one of the main arguments to combine these two. And um, moreover, I've had some contacts one and a half year ago with uh, a guy in the Dutch uh, Letteren Fonds Literary Funding um, 
And I know he was really enthusiastic about the story about Egbert and Koen. So I think they selected that and wanted to add a, well, a, a smaller, shorter story. Um, so I think that's how the collection has been made uh, at the beginning of the whole project. And uh, I mean, they're, they're beautifully, I mean, they're beautifully done things. I mean, I've, I've seen the other Strangers Press uh, pamphlets or chapbooks they've made as well and, and, I, and I think the idea as well of introducing contemporary writers young contemporary writers uh, into English is, is just a really great project you know it, yeah. it's, uh, it's exciting you know when I, when I pick certain texts for short stories you know teaching short stories and so on when I, you know when I'm when I'm working these kind of things are great to use because we can discuss stuff that hasn't been discussed before and it just it just raises a new debate, you know, because when, when I'm teaching contemporary fiction, we try to look for texts that have very little secondary texts on them because we want to engage with them in new ways. And and in some ways it, it feels when we're discussing contemporary fiction, it feels um, quite exciting to read and think about stuff that's been written now, you know, about where we are. And students always respond to them in really interesting ways and you know, I certainly want to think about using, um, you know, some of these some of these chat books for that. I think it'd be really useful. Um, so, in terms of the translation, then, so you still feel? I mean, you said you still feel like your stories. I'm really fascinated by that sense of them being dreamlike as well. I mean, it's it's kind of. I think about the first story. There's a sense of this moving beyond the boundaries. I mean where this guy is he could be anywhere in the world i mean i know that that we 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 kind of get the sense that he is in um i'm trying to look back for it now is he in actually a named city or did you just imagine him in in kind of any sort of city because it feels very global the concerns and the activities and the people that are coming and going yeah i haven't uh, as, as far as i remember um there isn't any street name or city name in the whole story um indeed because it's um it could be anywhere um in my head it was in amsterdam but that was because of the fact that i wrote it in amsterdam and i had uh, a street in my head that is in amsterdam but um it's not about amsterdam it could be anywhere and um yeah that was one of the things that uh that, that I wanted to put in the story um, because essentially it's not, it's not about specific street or address or even city or country. It's about the process of the main character that he's getting involved in the, well, the, the massage parlor at the other end of the street and he's mm-hmm. just interested, but then slightly and, and then suddenly his interest becomes more like an obsession um and that goes uh well, gradually and his obsession well it, it sparkles his fantasy and his fantasy um makes him write down a lot about not only about the factual things so not only about how many customers at which night but also he uh, fantasizes fantasizes about the lives of the customers so he writes down uh, even bios about people he doesn't even know. Um, they just come out of his head. So they say more about him actually than about the customers. So for me, the story isn't just about um, voyeurism. It isn't just about obsession, but it's also about creating stories. So in the Dutch collection uh, with uh, these two stories uh, and five other stories, this one is the first story. And that was really important for me to open the collection of stories with this one because it's about forming stories about other people. It's about uh, mm. fantasizing. And it's about creating lives uh, from other people only with your own head. So for me, that is the theme. So uh, yeah, that, that, that is a process, process that goes on everywhere around the world. So therefore, well, no street name included. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it makes me also think about the way that people use social media as almost like their PR agent. You know, they have these kind of representations of themselves they put out into the world. 
and um it's it's interesting that oh, the way the character can project things onto that like he you know he says about a middle-aged man in a black suit slick sunglasses he comes from texas happily married since college he has a humdrum job at a prison for years but he's okay about it this is his first and probably last time in europe he's going to paris tomorrow berlin the day after then he's flying back to america some days he likes to drink beer and watch football likes driving around in his ford and watching action movies starring nicholas cage two kids a dog an attractive house with a garden i mean these almost sound like kind of character exercises you know that like come out of creative writing classes it's like okay here's a picture of somebody what imagine them and and this is what your guy's doing in this um yeah and then and then there's this this kind of the, the thing that's kind of sad in this is the sense that he is waiting for life to get going and there's a really telling line uh which says no one had ever thought i wouldn't amount to anything <laughs> so so this is kind of fascinating idea that we expect people to amount to something you know and yeah. if they don't it, it's a shock or, or somehow they failed if they don't amount to something because their parents may have invested in their education or whatever it would be. So therefore these expectations are huge. So I thought it was really funny because it kind of turned that, that idea around. Cause usually it's like, you know, no one ever thought I would amount to anything, but this is wouldn't amount to anything. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah. And it, it's that sense, I think of, of the weight that is put onto these younger people in, in that way. You know, in the second story, you know, Kuhn has become, uh, has become somebody he's succeeded but at the expense of his his you know father's life and the challenges about the childhood etc um so it's yeah i just thought it was really spot on about i think some of those challenges we have in life the expectations of others on us that we've never asked for that we you know that we we shouldn't really carry with us but we can't help but carry with us and and when I read that, you know, and I was thinking about the way he projects onto these other people, is almost like, yeah, like life is life is elsewhere, essentially, isn't it? Life is happening elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's a really good analysis because it's uh, something that I really want to well, uh, um, put in these stories. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to um, explicitate it, and I didn't want to. Uh, well, write partly essayistic uh, uh, chapters about these themes, but uh, in both stories, but specifically in the first one, indeed, he's a guy um, who has a lot of chances. He uh, he has a wealthy background. He's well educated. Well educated. Uh, he has enough money. So all these typical uh, problems. And, and, and important problems for a lot of people um, that can say nobody expects anything of it of me but I will still manage to achieve something that isn't the case in his life actually he he subconsciously he even maybe even wants that type of challenge because that's something concrete that he can focus on but in his life everything is quite okay he's healthy he has enough resources to live his life he goes to the university a couple of days a week, but still there's like a big loneliness, uh, emptiness even within him. And that's, well, that, that, that's, that's what I meant with that sentence. Every, everybody, uh, well, I, uh, what, what, what you just read, what is exact sentence? Uh, uh, nobody no one had ever thought I wouldn't amount to anything. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. Uh, because he feels that everybody expects something of it, but all those expectations, how to live your life, how to achieve something, they can also be, mm. well, breathtaking, uh, actually, and uh, make nervous and um, make that you don't want to achieve a lot or that you don't know what mm. to do. Uh, and he's kind of well, numb because of that. And he constantly feels that. And I was thinking about the, the, the short bio uh, that you just read about the guy from Texas, uh, because yeah. indeed it feels like a, a writing task. And uh, actually in the Dutch collection of short stories, one story is 
about this guy. Uh, so this bio comes back in the in the collection of short oh, really? stories. But nobody yeah. ever uh, nobody ever noticed that, uh, which really surprised <laughs> me. Uh, and I, I had all kinds of um, suggestions in this first story that come back in the the rest of the collection. But nobody ever said something about it, not in reviews, not in interviews. <laughs> um, so yeah, it it, it 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 doesn't just feel like a writing task. It is partly a writing task. It was for myself. And it was a, some kind of hopefully subtle way to um, well, create tension in the whole collection of short stories. So this was kind of an introduction to the whole world of the collection. But maybe it was too subtle because uh, no, nobody ever <laughs> saw it. Well, that, that's the funny thing, isn't it? It's, it's amazing what, what we might put in there as, as, you know, kind of writers. It's that, it's that thing, isn't it, of um, spotting Hitchcock in Hitchcock's, you know, Hitchcock films. So, you know, North by Northwest, there's a bit where he just misses the bus. Yeah. And I was just like pointing going, it's Hitchcock, it's Hitchcock. And, and of course, everyone else in the room like, yeah, duh. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just funny sometimes. I think we, you know, certainly as a writer, I like to put kind of what I'd say Easter eggs in, you know, these kind of like little hidden little hidden things that, that connect to other stories or or brush across, you know, that's kind of part of the fun of creating these story worlds, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, so I was kind of interested in the sense of what it is to be an adult. I remember watching, oh, I think it was a Goddard film called Et, Et Revoir, In Praise of Love. And in it, one of the characters says, um, you know, when you, when you see a young person, you know it's a young person because they're either a child or a baby. He said, and you see an old person and they're with a walking stick and their hair's white. But what's an adult? <laughs> you know, how do you define an adult? And I thought that was kind of a really interesting idea. You know, and it's something that, that echoed in this, I think, when, when um, your character says in the first story, um, my young years are only a warming up. One day I'll be one of the adults and know how to behave too. And then a bit further on, I don't feel myself getting older. It's just that I see more and more young people around me. I don't see my peers gradually working towards a perfect job or a carefree marriage. They end up in a random office or company where without giving it a second thought, they sell the most energetic hours for an average rate. They go to bed with a stranger who gets them a beer at a house party. They develop a relationship with a person who listens most patiently to their stories and of all their friends, the one who is still single in his or, early, in his or her early 30s has the greatest chance of becoming a children's parent. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> quite fascinating thinking about sort of where we are. You know, it seemed really on the nose in terms of talking about, um, I think, how hard it is for that younger generation. You know, I think, I mean, I'm not sure what it's like in the Netherlands, but certainly here, you know, um, house prices and so on, we always hear about it, that how difficult it is for young people to buy houses, to have a job that's for life now. You know, all these pressures that have been put on them um, to maybe have children later. You know, it's kind of really fascinating, this, this shift for that younger generation. And I was talking with a group of younger students and they, they were really, really pissed off at kind of how they're being told constantly they need to get jobs and it isn't just about learning for learning's sake anymore and that they should be thinking about vocational work and so on. And these guys were really angry because they're saying, you know, it just feels like we're not allowed to make our own choices. And I, I think, you know, when I was reading that, it put me in mind of that, that group. I mean, it's, this, these guys were like 20, 21 probably. Um, but I think here there is that sense of, you know, things being almost worked out for them and that there's this particular path, but, but, but they're kind of being lied to, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And what you say about, uh, well, young people or uh, young adults in the UK sounds really, really familiar to uh, uh, young adults in the Netherlands, to the situation in the Netherlands. And, uh, well, I'm 30 now and I wrote this story, I think, when I was 25. And the main character is also, I think, 25. And the story isn't about me uh, and I don't think that's the most interesting uh, way to look at literature. 
but mm. I can add to this paragraph that it is something that um, well also went to my own uh, through my own mind. So it is something I uh, feel well familiar with. And uh, actually, this morning, I've read a new statistic, and I think uh, uh, that's also related to this topic, uh, that the Dutch or the, the Amsterdam housing prices since, I think, 1990, the year I was born, by the way, uh, went up, I think, uh, 300%, while the uh, normal salary went up, I think, uh, 15%. So that's, that's so broken um, that's... That was I saw exactly the same thing about Britain the other day. It seems to be someone's <laughs> yeah. putting this out. International stats, yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 so broken and so horrible that I understand the anger, and uh, I understand uh, the the feeling that you can't cope with what's what what life is expecting of you. And well, uh, around me I see a lot of people of my age. Um, in, in different ways, they have difficulties with uh, dealing with this fact. And this main character, to bring it back to the story, um, he has a big, big overwhelming, like a longing for meaningful moments that say you're grown up now. And from this moment on, you're part of a new group. And uh, of course, that kind of moment uh, never uh, comes in that way. It goes gradually again. Um, but I think it's a really understandable feeling and it's a feeling I, I've, I've also had. I understand the, the longing for that kind of meaningful moments and also the longing for, for any like momentum that says, well, you're part of the new group now, you're part of the adults and now you can arrange your own life just as your parents did. But of course, these kind of moments never come in that way and the circumstances nowadays are so uh, difficult um, especially financially but also uh, uh, if you look at the environment that, 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 and that mm. kind of stuff um, well you have a lot of also political um, movements that uh, tend to make you a little bit depressed or uh, dissatisfied uh, there's so much going on. You can say that that, that is uh, the time uh, that, that there's the case in every time, but I think it's it's more now that it's overwhelming and that it can make you uh, numb and silent and distant. And I think actually, even though I don't mention all these political and uh, environmental and financial uh, background in the story, I think that's the same process that happens to the main character who's only looking at the massage parlor. He can't cope with everything that's going on. He can't cope with all the expectations that are zooming around in his head, in his mind, that he feels from his parents, that he feels from his colleagues at the university. He, he, he doesn't know how to find, find his way to, to all of, through all of this, to, through life actually. So he focuses on a thing that he oversees and that he, can control. Now we're back at the team control again. Um, so yeah, these sentences that you uh, read out loud, they're kind of uh, key sentiments, sentences for his sentiment um, and for his feeling. I mean, it's also, you know, there's something, I mean, I mean, I mentioned the word globalization earlier, there's a sense of that kind of idea of world literature in this as well, in the way that we have the massage parlor and the women there that have possibly been exploited or trafficked into this work the sense that there's this observation, this stuff going on, but no real engagement with actually what's happening. There's a sense that the people he projects or imagines using them are wealthy or successful in some way, uh, seeking this out. And it's, it's this strange, this strange sort of sense that they are completely removed from everything. And as you say, it's rear window. It's like watching everything from that distance, but flipping that what's also interesting is Kern in the second story, the sun has become successful young, but on the back of, of essentially mining his own past yeah. and his own existence, almost like revenge against his father's generation. You know, it's almost that kind of okay boomer thing. It's like, you know, I've come for you now and, and I've come for you <laughs> in this way where I'm going to humiliate you on live TV. Yeah. And, and, and it, none of it really means anything because I don't get anything out of it. 
you know, you never know what Kern's, uh, Kern's kind of agenda is in all this. Is it to humiliate his father or is it to, because it's certainly not about patching things up. It's, it, it, you know, we're left none the wiser. Yeah, it could be to sell books. It could be to uh, make a flashy TV appearance. But because we're so stuck in Egbert's head, the head of the father, indeed, we don't really know about uh, Kuhn, Kuhn's main motives and his main feelings even. Um, and you could both say, I think, that that's part because of um, Egbert's self-occupied um, way of dealing with everything. He's constantly reflecting on himself, as we mentioned before. And he's constantly looking at uh, how people will see him and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could also say that's because Kuhn is uh, so harsh and, uh, well, uh, tactical and slick. Uh, but indeed, you don't, you don't really get to know anything about him besides what he says in the interview. Um, but uh, in any case, he's the younger generation who somehow... Um, takes control of the story of the of the main uh, events of the whole TV program, and he somehow well, uh, um, yeah, uh, has his revenge. Um, yeah, let's say I, I, I want to say revenge on the generation of his father, but let's say just on his father, who's older yeah, and yeah. part of an older generation. Yeah, it's more of an allegory, isn't it? In that sense, yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. But but I don't use I don't want to use words as generation in the in yeah. any of my stories. I just want to talk about people and about their psychological uh, um, aspects and uh, motives and that kind of stuff. But you could mm-hmm. see this um, as I think you could see it as a generational allegory. Yeah. 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 Wonderful, thanks, Thomas. Um, Thank so, you. what's your so what's your next plan? Are you are you writing a second collection or third collection? How many collection short stories have you written, actually? Only oh, one. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've I've written three novels um, over the last twelve years and mm. uh, one collection of short stories, and I'm writing the second one now. Um, and I have a lot of stories, but I really um, I really prefer collections of short stories with not that much stories in it because a lot of times uh, I read uh, collections that include so many stories that all the main characters are um, are kind of feel, feeling the same. I don't know where one story ends and then another one begins. So I try to make a collection of new short stories with I think five or six stories, not more. And um, I have... 15 finished now so uh, i'm gonna talk oh wow okay i'm gonna talk with an editor about that but that will take uh take some time and uh because my latest novel came out this year i'm I'm not in any hurry but uh, the plan is to write more short stories and hopefully uh one or two or maybe even three of them will be uh uh, translated in english again and then uh, yep. we'll make sure that the main characters aren't called Egbert and Kuhn, but uh, Andrew and Thomas <laughs> or something like that. So. No, I think give them, give them difficult names. We need to work hard in English, you know. <laughs> don't make it easy for us. A lot of <laughs> in it, eh? A lot of gay clunking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, yeah. I'm all, I'm all for kind of difficult names in prose. That's, okay. You know, and there's, there's something about Egbert as well where I don't know if this is the same... Uh, in Dutch, but certainly in English, there's kind of it's a kind of almost kind of a kind of tragic comic name, Egbert. You know, it's kind of if we call a character Egbert in English, there is something quite funny about that name. You know, I don't know if that's the same in Dutch. No, it's it's not a really typical or common name, and it's kind of old-fashioned, but it's not. It doesn't have a humorous undertone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because it's interesting because that kind of added. I think maybe that might have added some of that comic feeling to him to his plight. Um, but there's there's certainly something I think with names in English, you know, in the UK that that, that has that effect. Um, it's really fascinating. It's like we we might say by the name Colin or Dave or something. You know, they have certain elements or ideas to them. So it's fascinating. 
Thomas, thank you for your time today. It's great to chat with you. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, it was it's really great to read your stories. You know, I really enjoyed them. Well, thank you for being with us is published by Strangers Press. So Thomas Heimer Van Voss, uh, do check it out. It is a great little pamphlet or chapbook, I should say, of his stories translated into English. Thomas, thank you for your time today. And yeah, good luck with the rest of the residency. Thank you. Thanks to Thomas and Andrew. Thomas, we hope to have you back as a resident at Dragon Hall in person in the future. If you have any questions about the episode or want to get in touch with us generally, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Check out our Facebook page and sign up to our wonderful newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, where you can also find out everything else that we're up to, of which there is usually quite a lot. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing. Have a wonderful Christmas and we'll see you in 2021. Oh, that sounded weird. Did it? Yeah. What in a bad way? No, just saying 2021. That freaked me out. Ooh.